Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan in an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Things are good, Andrew. Things are looking up. Good weekend was had by all, and I'm excited to be with you. It was indeed a good weekend for you, my friend. Congratulations. A trophy for Liverpool. We'll talk all about that, of course, uh, in uh, just a couple minutes, actually. This is a busy podcast. This, uh, I don't know, sometimes in past years, JJ, we kind of enter those January, February, March months. Gets to be a little bit of, you know, kind of the European midseason malaise. Uh-uh. Doesn't feel like that right now. Feels like there's a lot happening, an unusual amount happening. Um, so, some of the catalysts for what's happening are is pretty atrocious. But you're right. This part of the year, especially last year, we were we were facing into Super League controversy. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah. So, <sighs> I mean, I guess this is the time of year where things happen. Now that's it's been preordained. I guess so. Uh, so we should say right out of the gate that I mean, obviously, you all know this. People who have listened to the show long enough know our sensibilities on on world issues and and how much we do care about. Things going on beyond just the soccer world. So, you know, on the last podcast, we covered things. And I should say, out of the gate here, we're going to talk Carabao Cup. We're going to talk Premier League. We're going to talk Marcelo Bielsa. Um, but what is going on beyond just on the field is certainly not lost on us. And in the second half of this podcast, we're going to have Mark Ogden, um, reporter from ESPN FC. He'll join us to talk a little bit more and get in, into some of the weeds of the issues uh, of how the war right now between Russia and Ukraine and the invasion into Ukraine, how that is affecting the soccer world, Russia being expelled from World Cup qualifying, uh, everything happening with Roman Abramovich. I saw Thomas Tuchel gave a pretty fiery press conference earlier today. Well, I'm sure that will come up. Um, so that will, in, in the second portion of the podcast, uh, we are going to get into some of those bigger issues. But, JJ, we start with the fun stuff, the lighter stuff, um, and a trophy being handed out. Liverpool win a very memorable cup final at Wembley. Yeah, it was excellent. It really was. And both teams brought something to the party. I thought I thought Chelsea were really, really good. And I think it's fair to say if you're a Chelsea fan now, you definitely know your strongest lineup and um, probably, probably their best performance in months. And it'll give them great heart for, for the run in now and the rest of the season. I thought I really do think Chelsea were very, very good. It was brilliant to have a full packed Wembley, you know, a cup final without any kind of restrictions, uh, just a full house. Uh, Liverpool supporters that didn't get a chance to celebrate the the title win in, in 2020. They certainly had that opportunity at the weekend to kind of roll it all together. Uh, a fun game, plenty of chances, uh, plenty of drama. It, it was so tense and also intense. And um as good a nil-nil as you're going to see, I don't know how it stayed nil-nil, and we went all the way to penalties, and the drama didn't even stop there. No, they couldn't score a goal in regular time, but Lord knows they, they had no problem scoring them in penalties. I should say, I mean, you talk about this being a nil-nil, um, but you know, this was, this was every bit one of those cup finals despite that nil-nil scoreline where you had two, I would say, very good teams that both played very good. And, yeah. and I, that's really the most... That's the most you can ask for in a cup final. That's the most you can hope for. Here's just to give you a sense of that. So the XG at the end of regulation. So this is just at the end of 90 minutes for comparison's sake. Um, it, the two teams combined for um, 
4.14 XG or 4.07 XG, I believe. Um, for context, the highest XG in a goalless draw this Premier League season was 3.60, which ironically oh, okay. was this past weekend as well between Man United and Watford. Um, but it goes to show that this was, I mean, chance, chance. And by the way, that XG does not count goals scored after uh, being ruled out for offsides. So, you know, that doesn't even factor in some of the most exciting uh, moments that this game that, contributed. There were some of those offsides where, uh, you know, you're like, this is very, very obvious. Now, not all of them, but a few occasions where you're like, just raise your flag. I know that's not the directive, but you can clearly see what's happening here and someone's going to get hurt. But that's a that's an issue that's plaguing the game right now. Anyways, it's, it's not just um, it's not just confined to this cup final and this weekend past. Andrew, both goalkeepers had brilliant 90 minutes. They really did. Like, you know, Keller was called on several times. Mendy made as good a save from uh, Sadio Mane as you're going to see ever. And I know I'd been kind of, certainly when I was watching the game in the Monroe in Brooklyn, I was like, why didn't he just lift it? I was in the full tense uh, atmosphere of the game. And, and my, mom, my mind was, I suppose, clouded a bit uh, by just the, the disappointment that the goal wasn't, uh, that the goal didn't happen. But and I, I was saying he just, all he has to do is lift that. Oh, I needed to stop. That is an exceptional save. It was unbelievable. It was Mandy. honestly it, Honestly, it, it was really incredible. was. There's a, there's, yeah, no, sometimes you get these moments, JJ, you'll remember this one. Like I call them Jersey Dudek saves. He had a save in the Champions yes. League final. Um, from Shevchenko. From Shevchenko. That, I don't know, it was one of those things where I was so sure that a goal happened that I like it, it didn't compute. Like I, I, I didn't understand, wait, how's the ball not in the net right now? Like that, Every once in a while you get those. I don't know if the Kelleher save on Pulisic quite rose to the level. It was close. The the save on Mane, it was one of those do not compute for me. How is the ball not in the net right now? Of, yeah. all, of all of the close call chances in this game, that was the one that I thought was most astounding that it didn't result in a goal. Uh, it was crazy. And, and as if this game didn't offer you enough, uh, Joel Matip's uh, header gets ruled out for an infringement in the box, which, by the way, I, I will be absolutely, totally honest with you. Had that have happened the, the opposite way, I would have had, like, and, and the goal was allowed for Chelsea, say, mm. th- that infringement, I would have had no issue with it whatsoever. Um, yeah, look, can we talk about that? I mean, that yeah, was sure. obviously, uh, the, the, the big ones, obviously, goals being ruled out, the matchup one that you're referring to now, we'll talk about the Lukaku one as well. Um, yeah, so I needed clarification on that, on the Matip one being disallowed. Um, so Dale Johnson is obviously a guy on Twitter uh, who is so useful in these situations. And he said this about it. He said, to be clear, it doesn't mean that Virgil van Dyke fouled Reese James. It's not law 12 for fouls and misconduct. This is law 11, impeding an opponent from an offside position. So saying, quote, if this is disallowed, every free kick should have a foul isn't relevant. He says that ultimately this was this was the correct call. Uh, um, maybe it was. I'm I'm talking about as a, as someone watching the game. If 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 a goal had been called back for Chelsea in a similar vein to that one, I would have been. We've got away with one there, okay. big time. That's fair. So so um, so I I want to be fairly even handed on that. That's the way I felt. Um, but it was ah, it was an excellent game. It really was, and. Um, 
And, and you know, I, I think there are nil-nils and there is excitement. And often in a cup final, a nil-nil is usually there's one team backs to the wall, but that's just not the case. I mean, Chelsea could have won this game. Probably a lot of Chelsea fans will, will look at that game and think, how did we not, you know, Pulisic's early chance from Kelleher, uh, Mason Mount's missed chance as well. Um, although that ball was, that cutback was a little bit behind him. But generally, you know, well, He Chelsea had a fans couple have, that I think yeah. Chelsea fans will be looking at saying, how did you not score? Right. But uh, but that's the nature of the game, and that's why it was it was so good. Oh, yeah. And it's why sometimes score lines are difficult to use as a gauge for how great a game was. Like this game, this was a far better game than Liverpool's 2-0 Champions League final win over Tottenham, I thought. I mean, that... Sure. Oh, this, yeah. That was a dreadful game. Yeah, this was this was riveting, honestly. Um, the Lukaku offside. <sighs> if there was ever a guy who could have used one, him yeah. in Wembley in a cup final to potentially be the winner... Boy, that would have uh, that would have changed some narratives, I think. Very true, and it's not like he didn't have a couple of bites of the cherry. He had that, you know, real marginal, 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 minute offside, and he had the chance where Kelleher saves with his legs at the near post as well. Um, he could have done with it, Andrew. It didn't happen, and and I know it's not like he had no impact when he came onto the field, but you can. You could definitely, well, I felt, apart from a couple of runs in behind from Werner, I, I definitely felt Chelsea weren't as potent as they were with their preferred three of Havertz and Pulisic and Mount. Um, and it's it's really the, you look at Werner, you look at Lukaku, those are two signings that have just not worked out for Chelsea uh, whatsoever. But still, when they came on, I was like, uh-oh, Chelsea are going to try and get more vertical, get in behind Liverpool, pin Liverpool in a little bit. And I, I suppose to an extent that that worked. But I still felt Chelsea were much, much more dangerous when Pulisic, Mount and Havertz were on the field. So, nil-nil. Now let's go to, I guess, I, I mean, there was controversy all throughout with various goals being disallowed. But let's go now to... I guess some of the decision-making controversy from a managerial expect, uh, perspective. And that was in the penalty shootout where, I mean, we just kind of went through some of it. Edward Mendy was, he was spectacular in this game. There's no way around it. And yet he was lifted just before the shootout for Kepa to come in. Um, obviously a strategic move. Um, coming into this, Mendy had saved zero of five penalties and shootouts for Chelsea. Kepa had saved eight of 36 What'd you think when you saw that happen? Did you? Yeah, I'm. I, 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 there's two ways to. Uh, there's a few ways to look at it. I think I'm not sure this tactic works all the while. If you look at the at the raw figures, which is what Jamie Carragher did, and he got into a big argument with Jamie Redknapp on Sky over this. Like Jamie Redknapp says, it's it's pointless. Uh, the basic Jamie Redknapp's premise was Edward Mendy is a better goalkeeper and he's playing well in this game. Just leave him in. Now, the statistics show that. Kepa has done better in terms of saving penalties. But, I I mean, we've heard these arguments hashed out before. I kind of feel like with the game that Mendy had had, with the, you know, the confidence that he'd had, better off leave him in goal. But the other side to it is Kepa started every other game in the Carabao Cup and was not going to play in the final. So I suppose maybe Thomas Tuchel was... was kind of harnessing that that uh, energy that uh, Jurgen Klopp talked about when Klopp talked about playing Kelleher, saying that, you know, I'm a human being too. There's no way, just because we're in the final, that I can possibly drop 
Keevan Kelleher and play Alison Becker instead. But that was and not I'm, Tuchel's reasoning for bringing definitely, in Kepler. No, definitely wasn't. Definitely wasn't. But uh, he went by the stats. But in my mind, I just would have stuck with Mendy. And, and I know Tuchel couldn't possibly have predicted it was going to come down to, you know, the goalkeepers taking kicks. But nobody's backing Kepa to be calm and cool and assured if he has to take a kick. Was it that surprising that he ballooned it? I don't think so. Again, not part of Tuchel's reasoning. I'm sure he didn't think, well, Kepa's a better kick taker than Mendy. Definitely not. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, this, no, this was entirely about, okay, I'm in a penalty shootout for a cup final. Which one of my goalkeepers is better in penalty shootouts? And, and we know what statistics say in matches. I'm sure Tuchel sees these guys in training as well. Um, so, I mean, look, the result is the result. Like, Tuchel's going to get killed for this because Mendy had a great game and the decision didn't work. I don't know that his logic wasn't sound in coming to that decision. I mean, it, I guess the problem is I'm, I'm kind of describing a black and white decision. Who's better? You are. Okay, you go in. But I do understand this element of Mendy was a monster in net in this game. and I do too. You know, that, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not completely against the idea of keeping the hot hand in goal. There's, there I, has I, to be a confidence that comes with just having played some of the best you know, 120 minutes of your life. Not to mention, JJ, this guy is what, like a month, less than a month removed from having just won a penalty shootout in the Africa Cup of Nations, a high-stakes yeah. one to, to win it. Now, granted, the saves that he made in the, that shootout, one hit the post, so he didn't actually save it, and the other one was just a, a dreadful penalty that you and I might have been able to save. But I, I've got to believe just in the psychology of a player's mind. That, like, just played a great 120 minutes, recently won a high stakes, even higher stakes penalty shootout than this one. Like, I just think all of those things to me in some way have to mean something. I kind of, I don't know. I, I won't be, put it this way, I won't be somebody who's going to kill Tuchel for this like I've seen, but I also probably would not have done what he did. If you look at the if you look at the way that um, that Kepa as well approached things, so Kepa was full of energy, talking to the players, taking the ball. You, you, you know, you saw what he did with Virgil Van Dijk, where he dared him. You know, he went to one side of the goal, he showed him the whole other side of the goal, and it's as if Virgil Van Dijk thought this is pretty disrespectful, so I'm going to ram it in right by the side you're standing. It's one of those badass the- things I've seen a player do. Yeah. I'm I mean, gonna. I'm. Keppa told him, "I'm going to cover this entire side of the net. I'm daring you." And Van Dyke still went that way and still scored, and then stared him down. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. It it was it was really quite something. And and the other thing as well. Again, I'm not a professional goalkeeper. I get that, but that feeling does not go away when you watch the Kanate penalty and you see how much of a hand Keppa got on it that he didn't do better with it. Now, on the other side, the system that Keevan Kelleher used, which was to do nothing, just stand and try and guess correctly, that didn't work either. I mean, Keevan Kelleher went in for none of the the tricks. He didn't even, he doesn't even jump. He doesn't even do that little jump beforehand. Um, He's just on his line, kind of trying to react. Um, That wasn't particularly successful for him. So, um, do you know what? I came across something really interesting, Andrew. I think you're going to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter, not always providing great stuff, but in this in this instance, I think this was great. There's a guy called Gare Jordet, 
He's a football psychology researcher, consultant, and speaker. Uh, and he's on Twitter, and he had a thread about penalty kicks. And I'm just going to read you a couple of the things that uh, were his observations from the Carabao Cup final. Um, so he, he talks about the, the success rates. He kind of defends Tuchel and says, Kepa has featured in their last three shootout wins, and his record is superior to Mendy. On Kepa, penalty takers score 71%. On Mendy, 94%. So he deals with that. This The, the next few uh, slides, shall we call them, in his presentation are very interesting. Uh, Gare says, when a shootout goes far, every single shot from number five and on is a must score to keep their team alive. Okay. In our research, we found that only about 60% of these shots are scored. Hmm. Chelsea impref- impressively scored six of these before Kepa's final miss. I thought that was interesting. So it, it, the, the, the success goes down to 60%. Uh, he talks about the fans behind the goal. So Liverpool had all their supporters behind that goal. Liverpool's fans behind the goal can benefit them if you don't let it add pressure, but derive positive energy from it. And it seems like an obvious statement. Five Liverpool players intensely celebrated their goals versus zero Chelsea players. So most Chelsea players did the, the finger to the lips to the Liverpool fans because they were obviously getting berated. But wait for this one. And he's done a study on this. Celebrating increases the chances of an ultimate win. (laughs) Now, I'm just presenting this information. Uh, If you go online, Gare Jordet, uh, G-E-I-R-J-O-R-D-E-T, he's got a, a paper that's written on this very thing. It's called Emotional Contagion in Soccer Penalty Shootouts. Celebration of individual success is associated with ultimate team success. Thought that was very, very interesting. Hmm. Um, and he talks about the goalkeepers. The goal, both goalkeepers made it easier by only moving in the correct direction three times each and eight times either moved too early or simply guessed wrong. So I found all this interesting. And the final one, Kepa's shot was the fastest of all with a 0.4 section second reaction to the ref whistle. The average for 22 players is 2.6 seconds. So str- the minute the whistle went, he goes to hit it. And fast is linked to more misses and suggests a player that is uncomfortable with the situation and aims to get it over and done with. thought that was pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, a couple things to take away from the paper that you just read to us. I would say, one... Liverpool reacting that way after their makes feeds into emotional football, JJ. I could see Klopp preaching that. Be okay. happy, emotional football. And then the the last one you said there about um, the quick run-up time versus longer run-up time to the ball. Right. I would not have thought that. I would have thought, cool. okay, a guy who they put it down, go. Like that to me is – like the the guys who go slower are the ones that feel more unsure to me versus the guys who go right away that just like they have a purpose. I know what I'm doing. Blow the whistle already. Let me do this. I'm so, a little bit surprised. Who do you think had the longest reaction time from referee whistle to movement towards the I don't, ball? I don't know. Reese James. Okay. And then after him was Chalaba and Diego Jota. And the quickest was Kepa, Milner, Van Dyke, because he was just angry, <laughs> Robertson. 
I, I just thought it was it was it was some interesting stuff. There's um I, I always associated quick penalties with uh with misses. And uh, Jamie Carrier talks about his penalty miss against Portugal in the two thousand and six World Cup quarterfinal. And he said, you know, he just wanted to get it down and get it done, get it done quickly, and it, it really didn't work out that way. Um Finally on this, JJ, so just looking at the game, you know, we, we've talked about obviously the X's and O's of the game, but like from a from a bigger context, you know, there's like I, for one, from the Liverpool side, I was not, I shouldn't say surprised to, to be reminded of the idea that this was Klopp's first domestic cup with Liverpool. I mean, you've talked about how there's this, there's been this notion of wanting to, how did you put it, wanted to kind of add to his his CV with during his time with Liverpool and the only way he can yeah, really do that is with trophies. Yeah, to kind of pad out that that CV with the with domestic cups, not just to be so singularly focused on the Champions League and the Premier League as they have been in in really since his first season. Yeah. And, and look, I can I can respect the importance of that. I mean, obviously you want this to be this is a this is it is what it is. It's a very fun day for Liverpool fans and it's a day that they'll remember forever, but like with a to a certain extent, you know, this this era of Liverpool are not just competing with other teams within the league. Now they're you know, they've been good enough. They've won a Champions League, they've been runner up in a Champions League, they've battled Man City, they've beaten Man City to a league title. Like they're now in some respects competing against history. Like this era of Liverpool will be talked about in pubs among Liverpool fans and and placed up against other eras of Liverpool. And so to add a trophy to it against a team like Chelsea, that's that's important for how this era will be remembered. Yeah, I think so. And when you talk about the the club and the club's golden era in the eighties, there was plenty of milk cups, as it was called then, FA cups. Uh, you know, the, the the era of Liverpool in the sixties kicked off with an FA Cup win. You know, that's that's kind of how it how it works. And um, you know, it's it's only because the monster of finishing fourth or in the top four in the Premier League and the monster being in Champions League football and kind of pushing all your chips towards the Premier League finishing places it's only really that that has has diminished the cup competitions and I I, I genuinely hope there's kind of a, a reversion towards the cup competitions as seen as being something super successful like I told you growing up if you won an FA Cup it was amazing you had a great season winning the cup was huge was it quite the league no but it was it was massive and um and I hope we can get back to something close to that because, as we saw at the weekend, these competitions are they're so much fun. Yeah, and then the Chelsea side of this, I mean, look, that's a de- it's a devastating loss. In a season where they're not going to be battling for a league title, this would have been not a, a replacement to that, but it would have been a huge boost potentially for how the season is going to be remembered. Now, they're still in the Champions League, of course, and that is really the prize that I think they would cherish among all of these competitions. But, you know, I was looking at, Tuchel in particular and you know it's been kind of this even though he's only been there for what like a year a little more than a year and a half like it's been this weird sort of up and down with this season providing a little bit more of the down than than last season did but if you look at what he's put together in just this really short amount of time that he's been with the club obviously he didn't get this trophy over the weekend but JJ he has a, a UEFA Champions League a UEFA Super Cup a UEFA Men's Coach of the Year the best FIFA Men's Coach German Manager of the Year and a FIFA Club World Cup um, so in a short span of time he's I, I don't know how Chelsea fans view him sometimes I feel like they they will defend him to the death other times I think they want to get rid of him um, 
but he's done quite a bit for them in a short amount of time. He has, and something dawned on me, considering how how well-managed this cup final was by Chelsea. You know, I mean, they could easily have won that game and how much better the performances were. I wonder if Tuchel and this Chelsea side is just, I say just, that's not fair. If they're a really good cup side, if they're a team that fundamentally is better prepared for those kind of one-off games. And so far, that that's proven to be the case because the league to them has been something of a slog. What is that exactly? Like, what what makes a team more suited for a cup run as opposed to being a good league team? Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it's personnel. Um, sometimes it's focus that it's, you know, a league game comes along and it's, you know, there's so many of them. It, it can, it's, it's harder to have, you know, that singular drive and focus. Whereas if you're told here's 90 minutes, win or go home, some teams really respond to that. Some managers can game plan very well for those situations for, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd say it's probably a million things come together, but it's, it's, it could also be Andrew. It could be one of those things that we grew up with in soccer that really wasn't based in an awful lot of data or, or, or fact because Tottenham for years were always considered, oh, they're a good cup side. Mm-hmm. I used to, I used to grow up hearing about teams. Yeah. Good cup team. And Chelsea, Chelsea in the nineties were, were certainly that they were a team that won in the FA cup several times. They were a team that won in European competition several times in the nineties. Uh, but they were never a team that could really challenge to be champions. Um, in the nineties. So maybe, maybe there is something to it. Yeah. Maybe it feels like, you know, in a cup run, there's something more tangible about that, that it's, it's always within reach. And maybe that, you know, a team that isn't like sometimes teams will just be mentally defeated by Manchester city or even Liverpool, the way they've played over the last several years before they've even really had a chance to take the field against them, that there's, they're already beaten in a cup. It's different. It feels like, okay, this is, this is there for the taking, no matter who we are, 90 minutes, anything can happen. Um, and that has a way of kind of playing into players' players' minds, I suppose. Where did you take this in? Where were you for this game? I was in the Monroe, Andrew, on Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, um, which is the Brooklyn LFC Supporters Club. And um, I got there early because I knew I knew there'd be a line. I got there at just about a quarter past twenty past nine. Um, I had my coffee. I had a roll with an egg and cheese and potato in it. Absolutely amazing. A little bit of ketchup. I had a copy of the New York Times and uh, Vinny, the owner, had just put a table out front and it was to open an hour before kickoff, 1030. So I was all wrapped up and I was waiting for some friends from my soccer club to come along. And I was the first person there. And um, I was excited to uh, excited. I, I was really buzzing for that. And uh, the day did not let me down. No, it certainly didn't. I'm, and I'm very happy for you. I'm glad you had that fun day. Liverpool fans, you. you know, you've. You guys won your title a couple years ago, and it was I, – I know empty is the wrong word, but there was something missing by the fact that it couldn't be celebrated in the the right way, essentially, in a stadium, in bars together, whatever. However, it would have been that Liverpool fans would have liked to have celebrated that. So, you know, this is not a, a like-for-like like replacement, but it was nice that Liverpool fans could have a day at Wembley or a day at bars or wherever and, was uh, and get to enjoy this. So Absolutely, and it's um, unbelievable to see a, a bar packed. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that hour in the day, absolutely full, and um, to sh- the the, con- the communal aspect shouldn't be forgotten. It is fun to watch football on your own. I I I still derive fun out of it, but it's really it's really something it's really something different uh, to be together and and share in unison with people. Definitely. 
Uh, all right, we continue, JJ, and let's go to uh, the other end of the table, essentially, and that's Leeds United. They lose battered over the weekend, four nil against a team that had not really been flying in their own right in Tottenham, and that is it. And I texted you after that Tottenham game against Leeds, and I said, this will now, I'm just paraphrasing, but essentially this this will really test just how loyal this club is to this manager. He is yeah. He's pushing the limits because this has gotten really ugly, and he's not doing anything to make it better. And sure enough, what was it, 24, 48 hours after I sent that text to you, he was in fact out as manager of Leeds. And even though this had been building, I mean, look, we can go through the numbers. They've conceded 60 goals this season, which is already more than they conceded all of last season. By the way, a team last season that was kind of known for conceding a lot of goals at times. They've already conceded six more than that team. Um, they've lost their last four Premier League games by a combined score of 17-2. to two. Uh, Since the start of December, Leeds have had two streaks of three or more consecutive losses in the Premier League. Before that, it had not strung together three straight losses since returning to the Premier League last season. This was going horribly wrong, and even in spite of all that, because of how I know this fan base feels about this manager, uh, there was still part of me that, that kind of couldn't believe it when I saw the uh, the official tweet come down from the club's Twitter account that it was over. Yeah, I, just one stat to add to it, just to give you a sense of why the, 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 the board may not have been in lockstep with the supporters on Bielsa. Only Swindon Town and Barnsley had conceded more than Leeds at this point in a Premier League season, and we know what happened to both those teams. So... <laughs> That's really the, that was really the push that came that became a shove. Um, Andrew, the link between the supporters and and this manager, you know, just unbelievable. So I texted my friend Wayne, who was a to say he's a elite supporter is to, is to do him uh, an injustice. He's a hardcore elite supporter, and I wanted to get his feelings to see if if what I was seeing and the morning. The, the, you know, the the genuine emotion and upset at Bielsa leaving was was something that he shared and he, he didn't disappoint me. This is what he said. He says, I'm totally gutted. For me, Bielsa had earned the right to see the season out at the very least, no matter the outcome. Bielsa and Leeds is more about the results on the field. He totally changed that club from top to bottom and put an end to 15, 16 years of wilderness. What he has become victim to is none other than premiership greed. Do the owners have responsibilities? Yes, of course they do. But making a change now is a massive, massive gamble. There have only ever been three men at Leeds who have produced a championship-winning team at Revy, Wilkinson, and Bielsa. So that's how highly he's thought of. And I haven't felt like this since the day Howard Wilkinson was sacked. I was there that day after a 4-0 home defeat to Manchester United. I... They were... They, it's a, it's a, I, in the modern game, is there another major uh, group of supporters who would say we're ready to go down we're ready to stick with this guy no matter what i don't think there is yeah i don't know uh I, we i feel like we kind of not maybe not to this extent but we lived this a little bit i feel like when ranieri was sacked from leicester city in such close proximity to after he had taken them I, to the, to I the remember title. the fans being very grateful, but I don't remember a single. I don't remember many Leicester fans saying that they were ready to to for whatever would would happen if Ranieri was to stay. I I, I don't remember that. I'm trying to remember. I feel like I remember having Andy May on, who's a Leicester City supporter, and I feel like he hmm. was of that mindset that he there was no 
there was no world for him where Ranieri didn't at least deserve to see out that season. I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth, but I feel like I remember him saying that when he came on afterwards. Um, and yeah, that was, I mean, to a, a greater extent even, you're right. I think that was how, I feel like a lot of Leeds fans do feel that way um, about this manager, which I respect that level of loyalty. Um, I <laughs> He kind of left the club with no choice in some respects. I mean, look, for for whoever Leeds fans feel about it, if you are the ownership, if you are, you know, the director of football at a club, like, relegation just has to be avoided at all costs. And this guy wasn't really, you can say that he at least deserved until the rest of the season to change things. How many more of these needed to happen before he re- before he did change things like I think, if, I think the, what I'm saying the, is like if he hadn't changed it yet this was going to keep happening there's nothing there's nothing there to make you think that a you're going to get a different result from him doing this or b he's going to change his methods this is what it had become I, and now I mean there, there will be people who talk about the board they'll talk about what he's done on, on a ton, on a much smaller budget to everybody else the fact there was not any real um, a slew of reinforcements in January. The injuries he's, the squad has had to deal with. The the key players that have been out, including Bamford, Calvin Phillips. Um, I I agree with you in a in a very pragmatic way that I just didn't see it getting better. And if you and if you can see that it's not getting better, then you have to make a decision. Um, now they have made a decision, and the decision is to bring in Jesse Marsh. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked Wayne what he what he thought of this and 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 his thoughts on Jesse Marsh. He said, "What else can you do other than get behind the man? Not his fault, but unless things turn around extremely quickly, the happiness of having Bielsa in charge at lead at Ellen Road, despite recent results results, will drain out very quickly and be replaced with toxicity that that ground knows only too well when things aren't going their way." And unfortunately, the manager and the board will bear the full vile response. So I'm praying for the guy. <laughs> this, you know, poison chalice. You know, it, you know, it's great. We've got a, we've got Jesse Marsh, who, who's been a very good coach. He's an American. He's getting a, one of the big clubs in England. He's getting a job. The context of that job means he's got to win immediately. He's walking um, into an unbelievably difficult situation. How do you replace a messianic figure like Bielsa? And and one that no one wanted gone. Like the fan base, you can be a messianic figure, but the fan base still be like, okay, maybe this had run its course. It's time for something new. We'll always love you. You'll, we'll, put, we'll build a statue of you outside. That was not the case here. I mean, like you just said, there are there's a, a large portion of this fan base that was willing to get relegated for this man. Um, they still want him there, and, and now this... You know, this American is coming in to pick up the pieces of a team that is A, not very good, and B, not very good and dealing with really important injuries. And it's a guy that they the fans don't really want there. This could get you know, this could get ugly quickly. If he doesn't win right out of the gate, which he probably won't. I mean, there's there's problems with the makeup of this team right now. Um, it's gonna get toxic. So I, yeah, whatever your friend there, I, I, I echo those prayers because Jesse, it feels like he might need them. This is a really difficult task ahead of him. Yeah, two points, um, two points outside the relegation zone. 
but Burnley, I guess we could say resurgent with two wins and two draws in their last five. Um, and Leeds have played two more games than them. It's gonna obviously be, it's, Everton sandwiched in there as well. It's yeah. it's going to be tight. The relegation it, it, race is really compelling, and it's it a, is ex- extremely tight. And some big teams could be in for a fall. Yeah, um, Jesse Marsh when he was unveiled, he um, he did a, a an interview with the the club, their website, and it was put out on social media. Uh, there was one part of it that I thought was particularly interesting, which kind of speaks to some of what we're talking about with him right now. Here, here is that with Marsh talking about trying to be accepted by the fan base. If the team plays with passion and they play with heart and they give everything they have and they they show that they're also intelligent and clear with the playing model and they're aggressive, then I think normally the fans will tolerate the coach even if they don't like his accent or the, or if he's not as as popular as the previous coach and over time I, I found that I've always had an incredibly passionate and and well connected relationship with the fan bases everywhere I've gone so that gives you a, a little window into I think the fact that he's he's aware it's not lost on him that he's replacing a guy that the the fans still support it's not lost on him that not only is he replacing that guy but he's doing so uh with an accent coming from a country that you know people can say what they want oh if you're good we'll respect you no matter what i mean look i think this is this is my american brain talking but i think that there will always be a a large section of english soccer fans that don't really have a ton of respect or time for american soccer fans and, I, I and he's it, walking into that and that's tough i think in this case the um you know the the jibes about america will 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 not pre in Bob Bradley's case, I felt the anti-American sentiment in in, in a soccer sense preceded uh, preceded a kick of the ball, preceded the results. I think it'll be the opposite here. I don't think Leeds fans are going to take against him because he's American. I think they'll. I think you'll hear jibes about being an American if things don't go well. That's the way I see that, and it will accelerate. Like I think Bob Bradley. I don't know if it preceded it. Maybe it did. Ah, because did. his his CV did. didn't really include much time in Europe. Um, Jesse Marsh's has, even if one of those clubs with RB Leipzig, it didn't go very well. Um, so maybe Marsh comes in with a little bit more goodwill because of that. But I think, like, I don't know. You can tell me I'm wrong and that I'm being overly sensitive as an American, but I think that if there's if there's a run of bad form among the fans, it snowballs quicker hearing an American voice talk about it afterwards than if it was a British one, a Scottish one, a Spanish one. I, I just, I believe that. I just do. I think he has to perform a little bit better to keep those voices at bay. The thing I'm most, you're probably right, but the thing I'm most interested about this appointment is that within the Red Bull family is where he's done the most successful years of his management career so far in New York and uh, now, uh, you know, Salzburg and then Leipzig. Okay, so what I'm curious about is outside the structure of the Red Bulls, where he's going to be on his own as a coach, what is, what is Jesse Marsh going to do? How is he going to, to be when he's outside that, that, kind of, that kind of footballing environment in a totally different one at Leeds United? Well, what do you mean? Well, Red Bull have a... 
there's there's a certain type of Red Bull coach. They have a way of coaching. They have a a style of play, you know, that is very. <laughs> Chris Armis doesn't end up at Manchester United because of his coaching CV. He ends up there because he knows how Red Bull coaches work, and Ralph Ranick is one of those coaches. So they have certain precepts and ways of seeing the game. And now that he's removed from a structure that completely, uh, you know, embraces that and he's going to a different structure. And you can say there's similarities. I was going to say that there's, there's attack mindedness in both of those, in both leads. I I don't think Marsh was plucked out of, uh, plucked and put into this job for no reason. I think that they like the way he plays. Who's saying that? I'm not no, I'm not that. necessarily disagreeing with you, but I think that there's enough similarities there that it's not like he's going to be asked to do something completely different than what he's done at previous appointments. I just wonder: is can you take that that uh, template? And and I, that's some that can sound disrespectful that he's a template coach. I, I don't know that he's not yet. Can he can he take the like I said the the ideas and the precepts of the of the Red Bull organization and transpose them into Yorkshire and and get the wins that they need now, Andrew. Like he he do, he does em- emphasize in his uh, interview with Sky Sports that was released this morning that like there's not a whole lot of time for there's not a whole lot of time for putting structures on things and for putting your they've got to win and win now and get out of this. They certainly do, and yeah, prayers up. To Jesse Marsh, I hope this, I hope it goes well. I really do. You know how we were with Bob Bradley. We became almost de facto Swansea fans. I don't know if it's quite to that level, I, I, but I'll, I'll be rooting. Speak for yourself. I'll be rooting. <laughs> I want to see Jesse Marsh do well. There's no question about it. Uh, couple, Absolutely. No, so do I. A couple other things in the Premier League, JJ. Uh, Manchester City, oof, pick up a massive three points, and they do so in controversial fashion. So, uh, I assume by now most people have seen what happened, but they know what happened. Yeah, uh, the near handball on on Rodri that could have led to a penalty, which would have tied it late, probably led to a one-one final. So it's funny if you were watching the broadcast. Essentially, NBC and Arlo White said, "Well, it's the handball's been ruled out because there was an offside in the buildup, and so that's that. It's all a moot point." Then Arlo White tweeted about the handball offside situation a day or so later, and he said, regarding Rodri and the handball, our info at the time was that an offside was spotted during the review from Richarlison. The Premier League have clarified that there wasn't. Therefore, Chris Cavanaugh decided there wasn't enough evidence of a handball offense, and I am absolutely speechless. Shocking. The lack of clear communication to the crowd, the players, and to broadcasters was absolutely appalling. Well, never never mind that. Pep Guardiola... And Frank Lampard are two different stories. Guardiola had been told that there was an offside, so it doesn't matter. And he said it to um, Jeff Shreves. He actually caught Jeff Shreves on the hop. It seemed as if it, it looked like Jeff Shreves had, hadn't done his homework, but it wasn't the case. And Shreves was stunned. He go, uh, and Guardiola goes, it was an offside, so, so it didn't matter. So there had been all sorts of stories communicated to everybody, not just to, to Arlo White and the broadcast team. And now we have an apology um, the aforementioned Dale Johnson is uh, is writing for ESPN FC. says Everton have received an apology from the Premier League's head of referees, Mike Riley, after their failure to award an injury time penalty against Manchester City on Saturday. Sources have conform- confirmed to ESPN. Riley, the general manager of the PGMOL, Professional Game Match Officials uh, Limited, which oversees all refereeing in England, personally called Everton chairman Bill Kenwright and manager Frank Lampard 
to apologize and admit a mistake had been made by the VAR. That apology now, will feel good, I'm sure, if they wound up getting if they wind up getting relegated by a point. Well, think think of the impact it can have on just one city, that one decision. It, imagine that's the difference between City capturing the Premier League and Liverpool not, and the difference between Everton staying up and Everton going down. You know, it's funny too because like when you're watching the replays, the whole purpose, I think I saw Dale Johnson tweeting about this too. Like they sync multiple cameras to essentially yeah. ensure that things like this can't be missed. Um and it seems like they like they had three cameras essentially synced up so you could see in real time every side of it. And there was one camera in particular that made it look a little bit uncertain. And for whatever reason, it felt like they put all the weight on the uncertainty of that one angle. But you sync cameras up to eliminate uncertainty from one angle. Then you examine that one with the others. Uh, they butchered this. And you're right, the impact on, on both clubs in that city, Liverpool and Everton, could be absolutely massive. Um, uh, I mean, I would say... Just a mess. That, that's but we, brutal. You know, you, know you, can't, you can't have it. If if this thing is here to help clar- to to help referees to to give clarity to do all those things, you can't have this. Um, yeah, a couple of things from this match that I quickly wanted to mention. Don't have a ton on it. For um, I thought Everton actually played pretty well in the first half. Mm. They you know felt like they were it was up and down. They were on the attack for a good amount. They were on their heels much more in the second half. Um, sure. But uh, my 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 secret favorite moment from this. Was uh, you see Richarlison? We we always say that he's one of these guys that plays angry. I mean, he literally—I think it was in the first half when he literally shoved Anthony Gordon out of his teammate out of the I way, saw that. Yeah. threw him, threw him to the ground like like a foul probably would have been called had that been a Liverpool player. Threw his teammate to the ground to get on the ball and try to get an attempt on net. He's he plays angry, and it doesn't matter who's in his way, wearing blue, red, whatever makes no difference. He's uh, he's one of those more physical Brazilians. Yes, yeah, he certainly is. But that's that's a tough one for Everton, and it's obviously a massive three points for Manchester City. A um, couple other quick ones: the the surreal moment of the weekend, one of the great moments from the season so far, was watching Christian Eriksen JJ return um, playing for Brentford. You know, Thomas Frank was actually the uh, his under seventeen coach in Denmark. So that there's your ah. link for those wondering, well, how did this this feel so random? Um, 259 days removed from when we thought he had been lost. In his own words, you know, he's been giving interviews in the build-up to this. He said he was gone from this world for five minutes, which is wild, absolutely wild. And he now returns as the first football uh, football player, JJ, to play with an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. It is in his body. It can reset the heart after cardiac arrest. So I was really curious about this because that feels... I don't know. It's it's hard for me to believe that a guy could can go on playing a, a strenuous sport with that in him. Right. Um, and so I was reading up on it. This is from the BBC. Uh, and they say up until 2015, doctors were still advising people that had one of these, an ICD, to not attempt anything more strenuous than a game of golf. That's not that long ago. That's seven years ago. Um, but they say new research has changed that. A team from Yale University followed 440 athletes competing with ICDs over four years, checking in every six months to see if they had experienced any adverse event. About 10% received a shock from their device while playing sport. 
uh, after it detected an abnormal heart rhythm, but there were no examples of the ICD failing, and none of the athletes in the study suffered an injury or died as a result of a sports-related cardiac event. They go on to say, uh, quote, the risk is low, says Yale cardiologist Professor Rachel Lampert, who led the study. We can't say all athletes with ICDs should do vigorous sports, but our data, our data show that many can participate with confidence that the device is going to work. That's just, that kind of fills your heart. <laughs> I was going to say it fills your heart in a good way. Um, it's so amazing what science can do, isn't it? Unbelievable. It's Truly crazy unbelievable. Because I would have thought, like you during the summer, that's it. Why would you do, you know, the risks of coming back and playing? I know, and, but he's um, only, it's amazing. He's been around for such a long time, so he feels like a player almost near the end of his career. He's 30. Yeah. And he's, I sometimes think about that. He's got all the money he could ever, he's got multi-generational wealth. His kids and his kids' kids, they're all good. But like, think of what he does for a living. Like, this is the most fun job you can have. And he's also, not only does he have that job, he's really, really good at it for both his club team, for his national team. Like, he has the potential to, to do unbelievably fun things that most of us can't even imagine. I can understand a guy, you know, even having this life outside of football with money and wealth and, and family and everything, still wanting, to, still wanting more of being an athlete. It's, it's a really hard thing, I'm sure, when you're only 30 years old to just say goodbye to. And if there's any way that science can can aid in you continuing to do that thing i get it man i would probably be the same way i think so too um but one thing we're going to talk with mark ogden in a couple minutes but he wrote a piece on this uh, about erickson's return and he wrote something you want to hear something wild that he that he mentioned i don't know what this this doesn't really mean anything but i just found it crazy so in this game for brentford erickson came on on 52 minutes and replaced uh matthias jensen who is actually Ericsson's teammate at Denmark. You know who replaced Ericsson that horrible day at the Parkin Stadium against Finland? Matthias Jensen, Jensen. the same player. Wow. <laughs> Wild. Um, so, yeah, good, good for him. I hope, this goes, uh, I hope this goes great as Ericsson makes his return. He got a huge ovation from all the fans there. Newcastle, Brentford, it was, it was a great scene. Uh, really cool. And then finally, before we get to Mark Ogden, JJ, uh, Manchester United kind of taking a page out of Brighton's book. Loads of chances, nothing to show for it. We t- we mentioned earlier in the pod their enormous XG from this one, but nil-nil uh, is how it ends. Yeah, really, uh, really phenomenal when you look at the chances they had that they, they somehow managed not to score. Ronaldo um, on his own. I felt yeah. like he, I mean, he was incredibly involved, um, but you know, and that's going to irritate him to no end. Absolutely, just drive him insane. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, they could have won that game 4-0 easily. Mm-hmm. And yet again, another another draw. And uh, as Andy Mitten from United, we stand tweeted earlier, everyone at Manchester United is committed to drawing every game from now until the end of the season, which is just like I spoke to it a couple of weeks ago. It's just, it's just how it feels right now. Yeah, although we've talked about this before. We talked about this earlier in the season with Chelsea when they had a game similar to this, and we kind of asked the question of, well, what's more important, the result or the form? Like, okay, the result... You mean the the performance? Well, yeah, yeah. The result was a draw against Watford. That's not good. But the performance, like you just said, could have been 4-0 easily. Which one one is more... They're not going to win a title, so, like, 
that draw doesn't cripple a title race. Now, it affects them, obviously, in the battle for top four. But is this a sign that, okay, we didn't get goals out of this, but like if we play like this every week, we'll finish top four, no problem. Sure, that that's good. Um, the only problem is it's a it's improved performances and better, you know, just a, a better style and look to the team under a manager who's probably not going to be there. And then you have to hit reset and start all over again. But I think the squad needs to do that generally anyway. So a lot of what's happening right now is probably going to be irrelevant because United need a clear out and a complete overhaul. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go ahead. Let's let's take a clear out and a complete overhaul ourselves. All right, we'll go ahead. We'll take a break. We'll step aside. When we come back, there's a lot going on, JJ. Russia's out of World Cup qualifying. Roman Abramovich's place with Chelsea is being called into question. We mentioned Bielsa, but we're going to get into all that stuff with Mark Ogden of ESPN FC. So that's coming up in just a moment. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned for more Caught Offside still to come. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. Well, JJ, we uh, we talked about this at the start. Obviously, you know, soccer is fun. We've gotten to talk about all of the fun stuff, but it is, as we stressed, it is not beyond us that there are much, much bigger things going on in the world. And while soccer is an extremely trivial element of those things, it is an element nonetheless. Soccer and politics are never far removed from one another. And so we bring in now our... Uh, well, he's ESPN FC's Mark Ogden, but I guess today he's part ESPN FC reporter, part political correspondent. I don't know how Mark fashions himself these days with everything going on, but Mark Ogden joins us now. Mark, what's up, man? How are you? I'm good, guys. How are you? All good. Yeah, we're doing well. We're doing well. Um, like we said, there's there are big things happening right now in the world, in this sport, and they are in some ways colliding. And I wanted to start with that, um, you know, the fallout from the last 48 hours of what has happened with Russia's football team and World Cup qualifying in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, uh, FIFA's decision to remove Russia from qualifying. Now, from your understanding, is this happening because they genuinely believed it was the right thing to do? Or is this happening because essentially Poland, Sweden, and the Czech Republic forced their hand? Yeah. I mean, look, you talk about the last 48 hours, I think we go back a week, you know, mm. UEFA stripping St. Petersburg of the Champions League final in, in May. So this has been a build-up, as you say, of sport and politics. And I spent the last week, you know, speaking to FIFA, UEFA, mainly about this kind of thing. Football has taken a back seat, but like you quite rightly say, there are bigger things at play right now. In terms of FIFA, I, I do think, you know, on this occasion, we have to give FIFA the benefit of the doubt because surely, surely they believe this is the right thing to do. Although they've acted quite slowly. I think, you know, that they they were kind of left trailing by the Poles, the Czechs and the Swedes at the weekend. It was fairly obvious what they had to do on Friday, Thursday, Friday. But the fact that FIFA didn't do it and there was a bit of a vacuum at the weekend because I was, I was trying to get hold of FIFA and it felt as though FIFA had decided let's take the weekend off and deal with it on Monday, which... You know, that wouldn't have, have stood up 30 years ago. But now in a kind of a social media race, 24-7 rolling news, you can't you can't just bounce things off until the start of the working week. So FIFA made the right decision eventually. And I'm told that this this was always going to happen, but they were just so slow to do it. And that statement they issued on Sunday evening, which was, we're aware of this, uh, and from now on the Russian team will have to play under a different name and can't play with the front of a flag or an anthem. It was like, come on. You know, you're not going to play. It's not going to happen. Let's just let's just get to the real point of kicking them out of the World Cup. Mark, is there any sense of how they might uh, negotiate this now, especially Path B, 
how would they reconfigure that without Russia? It's a difficult one. That, yeah, I, I, again, I don't think they've got an answer to this yet because, you know, the the obvious easy thing to do would be give, to give Poland a buy through to the final against the Swedes or the Czechs, but the Czechs and the Swedes would quite rightly say that, look, wait, that's not fair on us, that, you know, Poland have got a, a straight route. So there's a possibility, I guess, you could have a mini three-team tournament, um, but then how do you get the games in? How do you fit the fixtures in? Because, as we know, it's so hard these days to fit in international fixtures. So they've got a slot there for two games. Now... I think what will happen is I think Poland will inevitably be given a bye. Um, I don't quite know who Russia qualified ahead of to get to this. I mean, I suppose whoever came behind Russia in the group maybe be given a, a late last-minute chance to qualify for the World Cup. I mean, that would be an option. I, hmm. I, I just I forget who is in the group. But let's let's say that, you know, let's say Latvia, for instance, were third, then they may be promoted to, to play the game. But it's very last-minute. But that would be the fairest thing to do because, you know, Poland probably shouldn't get a free pass into the final. I think if somebody's been, you know, disenfranchised or beaten to a, a qualifying spot by Russia, then they deserve the right to take it. So I think FIFA have got a decision to make there, but they haven't made it yet because, as we know, FIFA don't have very quickly on anything, really. <laughs> uh, Mark, the, the story with Russia obviously has its tentacles everywhere, and one of those places right now is in London with Chelsea. So let's talk about Roman Abramovich. Now, Chelsea, the club, they, they put out a statement over the weekend which was... I guess more than a little vague, ambiguous. I mean, to the best of your understanding, what is Roman Abramovich's relationship with the club right now? Yeah, I mean, that was a very carefully worded statement and it, it basically amounted to not a lot when you kind of dissect it and read through the lines. It was, you know, he has passed over the stewardship of the club, not the ownership to the the trust. So let's get it right. Roman Abramovich remains the Chelsea owner. That If the club was ever sold, it would be him that would sell it, who would get the money. So... It's not really changed anything. I, I think what he's trying to do is put distance between himself and suggest that, you know, I've taken a back seat on this just in case he's one of the uh, wealthy Russians that's sanctioned by the UK government. There, there, there is a list of Russians that have been boycotted by the government. And Abramovich could be on that ne- next. He's not on it now. He may not be. But there is a suggestion that he may be one of the next tranche of, of oligarchs. If that happens, then Chelsea could theoretically be seized as an asset and the UK government would theoretically then own Chelsea Football Club. And these are all hypotheticals, and these are things that, you know, I think are unlikely to happen. But perhaps Abramovich was trying to um, suggest that he's not in control, but I don't think that would stand up legally. I don't think the government would say, oh, well, you don't own the club anymore, so we'll pass on that. So I think the big issue is if he is taking a back seat, does he put in the loans that have helped Chelsea cover some of their losses in recent years? And if he stops putting the loans in then how will they raise the funds otherwise? Would they have to start selling players? Again, these are hypotheticals, but it, the worst case scenario for Chelsea, I think right now, is that the tap, the money tap dries up from Abramovich and they have to become like an ordinary football club and, and buy and sell players to keep their, you know, the money flowing. So today we saw the exasperated and frustrated figure of Thomas Tuchel in a press conference been asked questions by nasty journalists and he he, he in fair I, I know i'm joking about it. in fairness he, he he genuinely seemed completely at his end and he just mm. said look i'm not a politician that's only a couple of days beforehand we heard frank lampard refuse to answer any questions on this and, and we know lampard's entanglement's not the right word but his relationship with roman mm. abramovich and now obviously his de facto boss at everton is usmanov we see two managers, Mark, who just really want to say, hey, 
this is politics. It has nothing to do with me. Does does that really wash anymore, considering the entanglements of politics and sport, considering both managers know who they're working for prior to signing contracts? Can we can we accept these these comments from managers anymore? No, I don't think we can. I think certainly at that Premier League level, Champions League level, that you can't, you know, look at PSG owned by the Qatar's Qatari families, that you know, Man City are owned by the UAE um Royal Family Government. Pep Guardiola's won a, a ribbon, you know, for Catalan independence. That 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 line has been crossed a long time ago. Football and politics do mix. It's it's you know it, it's a reality. So, you know, Thomas Tuchel is is a very eloquent guy, and he, he, I think he's very interesting in his press conferences. But you can't if you're the manager of Chelsea, you have to accept that when you go in there, that look the club are owned by a Russian who has made his money out of oil. So you know he's been reported to have links with Putin in the past. Strong reports. So. There are times that it's the price and the ticket, isn't it? You know, you can't take the Chelsea job for all the great things, you know, that the the great money, the wages, the competing at the top level without turning the coin over and realising what's on the other side of that coin. So, yes, it can be frustrating, but sorry, you, you manage Chelsea having previously managed PSG. So Thomas Tuchel knows, you know, knows how to pick his clubs. Along the lines of all this, Mark, there's still... Uh, you know, we talked about Russia as a national team being uh, essentially expelled from World Cup qualifying. There's still the issues with UEFA competitions, Europa League. Is there any talk? I believe Spartak Moscow are still in the Europa League. Any sense no, of they've been kicked out? They're yeah, out now. Spartak, okay. yeah. So Spartak should have played RB Leipzig um, in the round of 16, but they've been kicked out, and Leipzig have been given a bye to the quarterfinal. So no Russian team can play in European competition, UEFA competition. FIFA competition and that extends to the women's team which were due to play in the women's Euros in England in the summer they've been kicked out so haven't found a replacement yet but I'd imagine that'll be dealt with they beat Portugal in a playoff to qualify so maybe Portugal might be elevated but no if you're a Russian team right now you're not playing outside of Russia and let's be honest how would they get there because you can't fly anywhere at the moment from Russia because the whole place is closed down the airspace is shut so you know there's so many logistical problems right now never mind the actual sporting problems you just can't get out of Russia so no they're not involved uh, moving to, I guess, some of the the more trivial stuff, the, the truly soccer-related stuff. Leeds, Marcelo Bielsa, um, this felt like a really emotional decision for them. One that they, when they say they didn't want it to come to this, I, I, I know a lot of times ownership and front offices, they say these things, but I, I really felt it from them on this one. The decision to sack him, harsh or appropriate? Oh, it was appropriate. Look, I mean, they conceded 14 goals in the last three games, and you know, I think 20 in the last five. But listen, Bielsa has been brilliant for Leeds. He's got them back to the Premier League where, you know, people believe they belong. And I think, they, you know, they're a club that probably deserves to be in the Premier League if anyone deserves to be there. The football he played was great, but he he's probably, last season he was being to be found out. And I think that Leeds have made a decision now, which had they left it any longer, it would have been too late. They've made a decision to stay in the Premier League. So for all the romance, there's no romance of being relegated to the Championship. And I think... They made the right call, and I think, I think all Leeds fans realised deep down. I think it was one of those where it was a decision they didn't want to make because they loved Bielsa so much, but they realised they had to make. And um, yeah, the, the, the football was just too too wide open. And I, you know, I hear a lot of the times that Bielsa is a, a coaching genius, and he's a guy that so many people revere as their as their kind of mentor. But geniuses surely realise that when it's not working, you have to change it, like Pep Guardiola does, or what Jurgen Klopp does. Bielsa has continued to stick with this. No, no, attack, attack, attack. Even without his best players. No Patrick Bamford, no Calvin Phillips, no Liam Cooper at the back. 
at some point you've got to realise that you know it's not going to work. So Leeds have made the right decision. It's not harsh; it was the right decision. But Mark, uh, so if it is the right decision to move from uh, you know a manager that's too open, plays a pressing style of play that commits man for man, is is Jesse Marsh really the replacement to bring in? Because to me. It seems as if this is not, it's not quite Bielsa light. And he says mm. he can be a pragmatist, but there was very little evidence of that towards the end of his tenure at RB Leipzig. Yeah. He said all the right things in his press conference or his unveiling the other day. And I do wonder about this one. I wonder whether this, this appointment is more about a corporate appointment that Leeds want to become like an RB Leipzig and want to do things a certain way. And I'm not quite sure, you know, that Leeds have got the right guy. I might, I might prove to be wrong, but I think if the situation they're in, they need somebody who knows the Premier League, who knows, like you say, you have to be pragmatic, you have to rip it up. I'm not suggesting Sam Allardyce for Leeds, but that no. kind of coach who, <laughs> who knows <laughs> that who knows the league. Jesse Marsh has, as you rightly say, he did well at Salzburg in a in a league that doesn't really compete with any league in Europe. Went to Leipzig, didn't work, quickly didn't work. Leeds is a massive job, very big club, huge expectations, following an absolute legend. And I think Jesse Marsh is, is a is a kind of a, a a manual coach. He's one of these guys that will open the manual and do it this way. I think you need more than that. I think you need a bit of heart and a bit of passion and knowledge of the of the division. And, and I think that, you know, Holtley's don't go down. I think they're, they're a great addition to the Premier League, but I do wonder whether they've swapped a, a coach that had passed his sell by that for one that isn't quite equipped for the Premier League. Uh, Mark, last one from me, also on Leeds. Um, their success last year, it was always going to be hard to replicate. Do you think in any way there's something to be said for Bielsa maybe being a victim of his own success with how well that team performed last season? Maybe. And I do think at times last year that it they did take a couple of beatings last year as well. And it felt that this wasn't going to last. It, I think the best thing last year would have been for Bielsa's goal last summer. I think it would have been, I think he'd taken them as far as he could then. I think it would have been a much a much better parting of the ways that he got them back to the Premier League. It, just, it, it established them, but it was a time for the club to move on a different level and go for the kind of coach that they wanted. Now, now it's kind of it feels like it's been done with, you know, the water coming in through all the all the all the doors and windows, and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit last minute. And I, I think it would have been smarter to do it last summer. It would have been seen as harsh, but I think even Bielsa would have would have realised that, you know, it, it's gone as far as he can. But let's be fair, he has been without certainly Bamford and Phillips for quite a long time so they're big players but you know a good coach finds a way around that and finds a way to you know accommodate losses of players and change the tactics but that that was his downfall Mark we'll move across the Pennines final question Um, so United said today that the search for a manager is ongoing and it's thorough so apart from texting Maurizio Pochettino regularly uh, what is the search looking out uh, looking like? Have we have we any other names to add to that mix? Do you know this 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 drives me mad with Man United. This this explanation of the because I was told about a month ago that oh it's going to be really thorough and re- you know it's going to really uh, you know crunch the data. It's like look you're overthinking it. You're Man United. You want the best coach available in the world. You, all you need is, is, is three or four people in the room to say who do we go for. Forget the data. Forget this. It's either Maurizio Pochettino, it's Eric Ten Hag, or it's Luis Enrique. Right. What else? You know, beyond that, it, it kind of. I think United is trying to project themselves as being a thoughtful club, a club that's all over the detail. I think it shows them to be indecisive and lacking the knowledge because you don't need to be as obsessed with the data. I think the way they're doing it, they'll find reasons to appoint and reasons not to appoint everyone they're looking at. There'll be so much data. Oh, we can't, we can't go for him because he does this. We can't, but he does this and. 
listen, there's three coaches out there. And for me, you know, Pochettino is the obvious choice, but they're going to have to pay a big compensation through PSG. Eric Ten Hag, my concern with Ten Hag would be that he's now 52, 53, and he's never managed in a big league. He's never been challenged in a big league. He's never managed big players. Good at coaching young players, but we've seen with other coaches that when they have to manage stars or established players, they find it difficult. I think Enrique is the best one because he's got a fantastic CV as a player and a coach, big club mentality, can handle big players. Only downside is he's coaching Spain to the World Cup, so you know they're not going to get him until November. But you know, would it be the worst thing in the world to keep Ralph Rannick in charge as an interim coach until November? It's more time that they've wasted, but I'd rather they waste six months than waste three years by getting the wrong coach. So, But anyway, it's going to be a detailed and thorough process. And at the end of it, they're going to get Marcelo Bielsa. No, they're going to get, <laughs> I think, Pochettino. Uh, Mark, good stuff, man. Lots of heavy heavy topics right now in, uh, in this soccer uh, world that we inhabit. We appreciate you helping us through it. Thanks, man. Cheers, guys. Good stuff from Mark Ogden. A lot there, a lot there. A couple things I wanted to react to, um, and then we'll we'll finish up this podcast with uh, MLS's first weekend back. Um, the stuff that we talked about with Russia being expelled from World Cup qualifying, um, obviously a, a, a huge decision, potentially controversial one. I should say I have not really seen much dissenting opinion to no, that decision. No, there isn't any. Um, everyone seems there was to- much more to dissent to the idea of the IOC styled entry where they yeah. wouldn't have their anthem played Such they'd be called total silliness else. ridiculousness silliness. it's been ridiculous for the Olympics to do that and um, it would have been equally ridiculous for FIFA to take the same the same tact now in terms of how to handle it I know Mark was of the opinion that maybe the team who finished behind Russia in group play should just be inserted into this group and they would face Poland that would be Slovakia Mm. Um, not a bad idea. I don't. Again, this is one of those situations. I don't know if there are bad ideas. We're kind of like in this whole last couple of years, we've been dealing in so many just like uncharted waters type situations. This feels like just yet another one. I kind of more am in favor of the just have Sweden, Czech Republic, and Poland play some sort of three team round robin. Um, I understand that the the need for available dates is is difficult, but I think it could be done. I think so, too. I would say, well, I don't know, find it, find a way. But, but I'm also all right with whoever it is, Slovakia or whoever coming in and playing in their in their stead. I'm fine with that, too. Yeah, yeah, either one would be fine. I, I wouldn't throw a fit over either of them. I would just say if I had a preference between the two, the, the three-team round robin would probably be the one that I would go with. Um, also, we, we mentioned there with Mark, Tuchel's reaction to being pressed about Abramovich. Now, this one I'm a little bit more torn on. Uh, I am not like I agree with what Mark said there that there are certain jobs in sports that there's some baggage that comes along with it. There's a lot of good when you become the manager of Chelsea. There's a whole lot of good that goes with that, uh, but there's a little bit of baggage too. And in certain moments, you might have to deal with that. Well, we're we're in one of those moments. Whether this was whether you could see this coming or not, and I'm guessing when Tuchel took this job over you know a year ago, he did not foresee this, but this is part of the deal. Um, so yeah, I understand him being asked. My only thing is Tuchel was asked and then he was asked again, like how many times does he need to be asked at a certain point? Like, what is it, what is it that they're looking for him to say? The questions have been asked. What, what? do we just keep going and asking the no. same question over and over? Well, I mean, it was, every journalist is working for, for their own, uh, outlet, uh, in, um, 
wherever that may be. And they will feel like, well, I, I want him to answer this question too. And it's just, it's robust. They shouldn't be. The, the other problem is, Andrew, if it's asked once and then just, you know, but skimmed over. I, I, I have no problem with journalists regularly asking these questions. And um, on, on, if we really want football to change, then the, the key people in football who, who make all the difference, um, they should be challenged on, on, on being in the employ of, of certain Right. Certain. But what is it that he can say here? He said, you know, he, he made his statement multiple times. Where, where is he supposed to go from there? I just don't know how the story gets furthered other than somebody just trying to catch him, like saying the wrong thing somebody, at the wrong moment. It's not maybe not saying the wrong thing, but saying anything, you know, saying anything that's that's different from the line he's taken. I'm not a politician. I don't know about these things, blah, blah, blah. That's that's what they're trying to do. Sure. But I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong in that. And also there's a press officer there who who, who moves it on, who mm-hmm. says, OK, next question is now only about the game. It's just the nature. It's the back and forth. It's you could you can you can call it, um, you know, you you could just call it robust. It's he's going to get peppered with these questions. Uh, and then the other thing from uh, talking with Mark there that I wanted to bring up. Mark, Mark said something that was really interesting to me when we were asking him about Marcelo Bielsa. Um, he said that maybe the best time for him to go would have been last summer. <sighs> Yeah, I mean that was never going to happen. You see, like I don't know. In sure, in hindsight, this season has not gone well for Leeds, but in their first year back in the Premier League, JJ Leeds finished ninth. I know they were one of the best stories of the season a year ago. The brand of football that they played, the players that had um, had, had burst onto the scene that had become household names. <laughs> like I don't know, that doesn't feel. That doesn't really feel realistic that that was ever a thing that could have possibly happened. Why would why would he have ever been sacked in that moment after last season? It was it was it was never going to happen. If you wanted to make the, um, if you wanted to make the argument that hey, listen, there were signs last season that when they get they get opened up, they get beaten badly, and that this may have long term consequences. This style of play. But by the by the same token, I agree with you. It was it was never ever going to happen. This is uh, like we said, this is a figure who is beloved and who has relinked the. Uh, he's kind of found this 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 way of the fan base and the club, after years of disharmony, being pulled back together again. And and that was all Bielsa and all the things he's done and the way he's gone about his business. There was no chance he was going to be fired last season. So there you go. Our thanks to uh, to Mark Ogden. That was great, great stuff. Enjoyed catching up with him. It's been a while since we've uh, had him on the podcast. Finally, JJ, MLS returned this past weekend. Um, eventful opening weekend, I thought. A few things stood out to me. I'm wondering, uh, I'm sure you have some things as well. Um, one of the things for me, you know, we, we did our, uh, our MLS preview on the last podcast, and for my club that I didn't know really what to make of this season, I went with LAFC because I didn't know what to make of Carlos Vela. Well, that was quite an opening statement. Hat trick in his first game. Um, a nice start. His contract expires during this season. Uh, and you almost wonder if you could have like a Mo Salah-esque situation, contract situation happening with Vela, where he's getting up there in age. What is he, 34 I know Salah's younger than that, but yeah, you know, yeah. But like with Vela, you wonder, okay, it, 
like maybe ownership, maybe the club doesn't want to throw a ton of money at a guy who's getting a little bit into advanced years as a player, but is Vela going to perform at a level where he gives them just no choice? Where like the fans will be so behind him and his performances for the team will be so great if he can recapture his form from a couple seasons ago that that like he'll have no choice but to be able to cash in one last time in in a huge way. So we'll see. I it think, was a great start. I think so as well. It's 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 tough to find uh, strikers strikers like him to replace him, even if you were to m- want to move on from him. Um, speaking of uh, moving on, one guy who I thought would be moved on from MLS a couple of years ago. Uh, Dom Dwyer is alive and well and scoring in MLS for Atlanta United, Andrew, in their uh, 3-1 win over Sporting KC. Pretty great goal, too. His 82nd in Major League Soccer, but he hadn't scored a league goal since since September of 2019. He was without a club. Atlanta took him on trial. I know he's only 31, but, you know, maybe this could prove uh, to be an interesting pickup for Atlanta. Kind of shocked me that one when I saw him... uh, burying the the goal for Atlanta. Yeah, and there was another thing from that game that I thought, that I found actually even more um, interesting, and that was 17-year-old Caleb Wiley coming on for Atlanta United FC and scoring a goal in front of 67,000 fans. This is an academy player who just signed a professional contract with the club. Mm. Comes on, I mean, so he's come up through their academy. Like, just imagine, so he's like a kid, he's 17, come up through the academy, comes on as a sub for Joseph Martinez, a guy that he has probably idolized ever since he first joined Atlanta as a boy, comes on for him. Now he's in front of 67,000 in this gigantic stadium, and then he scores a goal. Just like just like a, a dream coming true right before your eyes. There's video. It's kind of hard to see, um, but there's video that's been circulating a little bit on Twitter of his parents in the crowd. And you can just see how emotional the moment was for them, for him to to do that, to watch your kid, who you're probably so nervous for. He's 17, and he's out there with, with men. Uh, and he comes on scores really, really cool. And now you get a situation, Wiley, a fullback, is going to try, I guess, and replicate the footsteps of another Atlanta youngster who's gone on and do, done some big things, George Bellow, who just moved uh, to Europe. And we'll see if they can send another one of those through the pipeline. But, yeah, what a what an unbelievable debut. Well, you're talking about the pipeline. Just breaking news an hour ago was that uh, NYCFC signed 14-year-old academy product Maximo Carrizo as youngest player in MLS history. It's so, incre- I saw it. It's an unbel- It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. When you see this child holding up a, a jersey, it's it's frightening. It's the way the league. <laughs> it's it's the way the league is trending as well, though. Um, getting that young talent, getting it into the squad early, getting it in at maybe 17, 18, and then moving moving that talent on to Europe. I just wonder how guys like that, and I don't think he'll be with the first team right away. No. Uh, but, like, presumably he might be in a year, you know, 15, 16, I, certainly. It's, that's like, the scary part How can for he me. be in a locker room with guys who were, like, in their early 30s? And like, how, could, how could Michael Owen? Imagine Michael Owen, who was an absolute phenom, walking into a locker room with England in 1998 with guys who were... 20 years older than him in some cases and and it's not just 20 years older like but you're in a time of your life where you really are still a kid like i don't know how you relate to the guys in there who are even in their mid-20s let alone early 30s like there's even though that's not that far in age like 16 to 24 
But like in terms of life experiences, I don't I don't know. That's just like that's a hard room to suddenly be thrown into and just try to like mesh with. Um, you don't you don't relate to them. That's the point. You learn and you grow up, you, but you don't relate to them. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, and then finally, one other thing that stood out to me, JJ, probably what I thought was the most impressive win from the opening weekend occurred in Seattle, but it was not Seattle doing the winning. It was Nashville. Uh, came away one nil winners thanks to Annabelle Godoy, who scored fairly late on. Uh, and I bring this up a because going to Seattle and winning is a really hard thing to do. Seattle's really good, and they're really good at home on that turf in front of that crowd. But for Nashville, it's even more important because they're going to play their first eight matches on the road. Their new stadium, uh, 30,000-seat soccer-specific stadium. It's going to be the largest soccer-specific stadium in the country. It doesn't open until May 1st. So they got eight road games to go before they get to that. <sighs> That's tough. Like now they, they were in Seattle. They're going to come home for a couple days. Then they're going to go to Minnesota. And that's just going to repeat over and over and over. So this has potential to be a, a really, really tricky period to navigate. To get out of the gates and go there and get three points, that's huge. Like what a great way to start that kind of run. So if they can just stay afloat until they get into that new building and then have a lot of home games to play the rest of the season, um, they could be in really good shape. So uh, great win. Great win for Nashville to get the season started. Yeah, last MLS thing for me is uh, Charlotte were beaten 3-0 in their inaugural MLS game, but they had more shots on target, more possession than DC United. And considering how bad, if, if any of you have been reading the, the previews of this season from the MLS um, eggheads, a lot of them were saying this was, you know, just the way the roster is being constructed, how, the, uh, how it's just kind of been a bit of a mess. Um, this wasn't a, an awful start. 3-0, n- not a terrible start. No. Well, I guess, I mean... The score's not great, but performance over result, JJ. That's what we're saying. That's the theme of today, I suppose. Yeah, except they can't go down and Leeds can't. So well, that's, that's true. That is true. Well, there you go, my friend. That is a podcast for you. That's a podcast. I've got one one really quick thing I want to ask you. Yeah. Just because you're here. We didn't get a chance to do a mailbag last week. You didn't get a chance to do one this week. We should but probably I've, I've do just... a mega one next week, almost like a mailbag I... special. We probably should. People, I've just picked yeah. one out quickly. Okay. Uh, Jordan asks, people who film themselves reacting to a penalty shootout, jerk or no jerk? <laughs> I think if you had asked this question uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, uh, well, how long is the iPhone out? It's out about 14 years, I guess. Okay. If you if had asked, asked that at the start of the camera phone, you're going to record yourself reacting to a penalty shootout you're watching, I think people would have been, oh, oh, no, no, no. And maybe some people still feel that way, but it's it's a much more normal thing now. Personally, I don't think I'd do it. I want to be absorbed in the moment. I don't want to be that aware of myself reacting. I feel that could turn into some kind of weird loop where I'm emoting on purpose. Yeah, um, that's, the only, that's the only reason I kind of disagree with the way you look at it. Like if if somebody had done this ten years ago or whatever, I might have thought, oh, that's a cool idea to kind of like capture in time the way you were feeling for this huge event. Now, because it's become almost too common, it almost feels performative now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like if if there's someone else in the room doing it, and maybe you're not even aware, then I love it. Like that's what a cool thing to have. 
Um, but if you have taken your phone, you've set it up. Now I've watched some of these, and sometimes they feel really genuine, and I'm I'm good with them. Um, yeah, I guess it's all about how the person in it is. I, behaving. I think if you've taken the decision to record yourself reacting to something else, that that decision to do that adds a different element to it and adds a layer of not falseness, but a layer of performance. Like if, if the goal, like if, so Kepa's shot goes over the bar and if you're recording yourself and you immediately like rip your shirt off, like if you maybe do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do, then I'm kind of like, ah, you're trying, I think you're trying too hard. And that, uh, cheap, and, that and, cheap and there it. are, there's a lot of, I haven't read a whole lot of it, but I remember when we, we did film study in college, there was a lot of, about, the awareness of the of the subject mm-hmm. and uh and i think um it's not doc it's certainly not a documentary style when it's like that it's uh you're you're very aware so you're not a you're not a jerk for doing it because so many people do it right, yeah. right now but I, I i don't think it's great man we've got we got into some deep issues on this podcast. i know i know uh good stuff we'll be back with another one of course next week um where we'll look at everything going on in the premier league in mls we'll see whatever the latest developments are Um, in global events and how that is impacting the game as well. Our thanks to Mark Ogden for joining us. JJ, this was good stuff, my friend. To you, I say... Take it later, fun boy. I'll see you. Take care, brother. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 